up, everyone? I hope you're doing fantastically well today. It is Tuesday, June 30th, 2020, and we are halfway through this fuck shit of a year that is 2020. We're halfway there, but it doesn't mean we can see the light in the tunnel. Because some of y'all motherfuckers don't know how to act, and we can't get rid of coronavirus yet. But that's another podcast, another conversation for a different night. Tonight, I'm here with Shawan Humes to talk about mixed martial arts and combat sports. How are you doing there, sir? Welcome back here. Just uh, in a state that will soon be other under military control and completely shut down, it seems like. See, there was a time where you can make those kind of jokes and people would be like, ah, ha, 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 you're just joking, you're just joking. Now we're almost at the point where you can't make those types of jokes because the shit might just come come to, to fruition. So let's not do that. Because I'm, I'm trying to do some things. Like, I've been sitting here for the last, like, for New Year's Eve this year, New Year's or New Year's Eve, I booked myself on a trip to um, Cartagena, Colombia. So I'm looking at this place like, yo, I spent all this money to go to Colombia for New Year's because I want to be somewhere warm every year now, starting out. And I'm like, I may not be able to go. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, there's a, some, I had a, these people I know in my neighborhood for their daughters. Uh, it was going to be their, her 17th or 18th birthday. I don't know. They were going to take her to Boston for a week and go see a Taylor Swift show. And they were going to take like four of her friends and a bunch of family. I mean, it was going to be like ton. And we're talking about good seats. We're talking about like upfront, thousands and thousands of dollars, and all that just out the window. So, yeah, I'm we're talking like almost like, a $20,000 trip. I'm looking like, man, I got to, we got to make this work because um, December come Q3, we need to be able to travel again because I, Q4, I need to be able to get out and be able to do my thing. I can't be in the house again for the third of the last four. New Year's, but that's neither here nor there, man. Let's talk about some MMA action. And we had a hell of a card to talk about on Saturday, at least from the main event standpoint, uh, with UFC Vegas 4. And as the story goes, I usually talk about this a lot in professional wrestling, and it works also in talking about MMA. But the excitement of a card usually comes out when talking about the main event. The rest of the card can suck. But if the main event delivers, people will have a positive mindset when it comes to that show. The main event of UFC Vegas 4 from Saturday delivered, and it delivered fantastically well. The rest of the card, you know, it was what it was. Nothing really stood out. We're going to talk about a couple of different things from the rest of this card. But the main event between Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker delivered in every sense of the word. So we're going to start there. We're going to talk about this fight, this five-round battle between these two individuals. So, first thoughts, Schwan. Tell me what you thought about the main event at UFC Vegas. What were some of your high-level thoughts from a stylistic and game plan standpoint? Uh, it was a good fight. Um, it was kind of the perfect combination of Dustin Poirier being on a decline and Daniel Hooker kind of having some momentum, coming off a big, big win, feeling like he could take the next step forward. It was like perfect because when you're on a, when you're on those win streaks, you start thinking that anything's possible. That the title fights within your sights. You get a big name guy, gives you that confidence, that extra push to go a little bit harder because you think that now is your time. You're gonna step across that threshold and become the next elite guy to announce themselves as elite. And um, it would, with Dustin Poirier, Dustin's been a long time high level fighter in two weight classes, an interim champion, 
and he had lost just enough of a step so that a guy in with Hooker's limitations was able to draw out a kind of round of the year and fight of the year from him. I mean, Justin generally gives us good fights, but in my opinion, the guy of his class usually gets rid of somebody like Hooker a little bit quicker and a little bit more decisively if he's also under fire, firing in his prime. Uh, I don't think that's the case for Poirier as it stands now, but we got a great fight out of it as a result. So let's talk about this great fight. And you mentioned specifically Dustin Poirier's decline. Now, yes, he won a unanimous decision uh, victory. But as I was watching this fight, the first two rounds, the way he was fighting, the strikes he was taking, I'm like, he's going to get himself finished. Because he was taking a lot of strong shots, a lot of combinations, and it looked like he was hurt multiple times in those moments. And it looked to me, from what I was seeing, that Hooker noticed he was hurt and took his foot off the gas because he didn't want to get caught with anything from a counter standpoint because he knows that that's how Poirier fights. And he wanted to make sure he had the gas tank to go 25 minutes, which in turn, played into a part of his decline in the end of the fourth and the fifth round. But let's talk about Poirier first. Is he off a step? Because if you look at his career, he's never lost back-to-back fights. He's been in, in the UFC for 10 years, um, since 2010, when he, I think he took a, or a WEC, that's where he started first. He's never lost back-to-back fights in his career. In fact, when he loses... He almost always, except for the the space between the Cup Swanson and Chang Sung Jung losses, he's he puts together a strong win streak before he loses again. When we saw the way he fought on Saturday, would you say that at 31 years old, we are looking at a Dustin Poirier that may be on the on the decline? Well, the main thing, the main in watching the fight, he didn't seem very fluid. He he seemed mentally sharp. You could see his eyes were seeing everything. You saw that he was having to tech, tech, the correct technical reactions as far as his movements and his placements. What I didn't see initially was that snap. I didn't see that fluidity. I didn't see that sharpness. It's like he had to warm himself up. And Dustin's never been a historic. He's not like a Donald Cerrone who's a historically slow starter. Dustin's usually on it from the word go. So the fact he had to work himself into it gave some concerns to me. Um, secondly, Dustin Poirier, even though he's never lost two fights, Back to back. The fact of the matter is, if you look at his resume, he's been fighting in two really tough divisions. He's fought really, really tough guys. He and since Dustin is known for putting on fight of the night type fights, guess what that means? That means none of these fights are easy, regardless of who he's fighting. He finds some way to make it a difficult, challenging, punishing fight on both ends. So if that's the case. He's been doing this for how many years? And he's and in the last what three to five years has been almost, you know. Top, mostly top 10 ranked guys, some of the best guys they've had in the divisions, best guys they've had in the UFCs. And he's been going back to fat, back back against them with the highest skill levels, huge punchers, great athletes, grinding, punishing fighters. And he's been basically, basically pretty much facing them back to back to back to back to back. That kind of wear and tear will will put extra miles on you. And I always tell people, you can, have, you can be a world-class athlete, you can be a world-class fighter, but when you face a certain amount of punishment against a certain amount of a cer- cer- certain caliber of opponents, essentially what you're doing is you're having some of that world-class beaten out of you. I think every top-end fighter should get some soft touches in between to extend their career and to get them chances to develop stuff in a live-action frame where they can develop certain, 
certain defensive aspects, certain offensive counters, maybe tighten up things so that they're not making the same mistakes and having the same holes in their game when they're facing the elite guys. Because when you face uh, elite, 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 elite guys, you never get a chance to work on anything. All you can do is refine your strengths and refine things you do well because that's all you have the time to do because you're facing guys who you can't make a mistake against. So you can't take chances. You can't be risky. You can't be creative. You have to stick to the formula and just get really good at what you already do instead of developing new skills or a greater range of skills. And that's the third thing that I'm looking at when I see Poirier. Poirier, technically, he's kind of stagnated. He's not, he hasn't regressed, but he still doesn't, doesn't defend takedowns very well. Uh, he's offensively fine in the pocket, but he's, he's always been hittable before. He's still hittable now. Um, and, even, and even though he's often the better athlete and more physically stronger, and powerful than a lot of guys he fights, he still doesn't actively look for takedowns enough and look for control to avoid the exchanges that he doesn't have to have. You know, at a fight against somebody like Hooker, Hooker's not, not the athlete he is. Hooker's not as strong as he is. Hooker doesn't hit as hard as he is. Instead of getting into an extended firefight, why not work some more takedowns and get in control positions and just wear them out, lean on them, burn up that gas tank, touch the body, take the legs out from under him on the ground. Then when he gets back up, finish him off. Why not? Why why is he still getting taken down? And instead of defending the takedown, going for the guillotine. Like that's something that people have been calling out for the past three to five years. And he he still does it. Regardless of who he's facing, he still does it almost every single time. Which is fine if you get the submission and you can threaten it, get back to your feet or reverse. But what if you're not really what if you're getting a legitimate grappler? You just gave them the position they want. Now they're gonna finish you. You tried that against Khabib. He's done it so much times that he couldn't even get out of his own way to do it against a guy he knew it was not gonna work against. So that's why I think we have, we've already seen the best of him because he's faced so many elite guys. It's like sparring. When you spar hard all the time, you can't try new things. You're just trying not to get your head taken off. So all, all you do is get better at what you already know how to do. You don't expand upon it. So technically, I don't see a lot of expansion. I see refinement. I see a little bit more seasoning. I see a little bit more deliberateness, a little bit more control, patience. But I don't see a vast array of new skills. Physically, he's been in so many wars and back and forth. There's no way he can maintain at the elite ends of being a high-end athlete anymore. And and first and first of all, once you go back to it, he's just been doing this for a long time. He's just doing this for a long time. He's been training for a long time. He's been fighting for a long time. At some point, he's not he's not a typical thirty one year old who started this when he's twenty three or twenty six. Or he's been doing this for a very long time. He's been training, getting injuries, getting to fights, being in wars. The amount of time he's put in adds to the mileage. The level of opponents he faces. T- as to the quality of the mileage and his lack of diversity and skills just makes the mileage be applied in certain key aspects. Instead of it having spread out over the entirety of the MMA game, it's, spread, it's focused in these two areas. So all three of these factors is what I think has led us to seeing what's left of Destin Poirier. Now, he's such a good athlete. He's so experienced that he's going to be able to navigate rough spots against lesser guys. I don't know that he beats any more elite guys at this point. I my doubts at this point, especially after this fight. So I have been looking at some of Poirier's fight stats, and you're right. He is taking a lot of damage in his last few bouts. Um, He took 155 significant strikes against Dan Hooker, or from Dan Hooker. He took 181 from Max Holloway, um, 115 from Justin Gaethje. He took... Those are the biggest numbers that he's taken, and that is in three of his last five 
fights, four of which he's won. So you got to give him give him his credit. He gives it out just as much as he takes it, other than the uh, Khabib and Margot Madoff fight. But at some point in time, the downward spiral comes. And looking at the UFC's roster, you have to wonder what is next for him because he is in a position where he can't claim a title shot because he just lost to the champion. So, you, yes, he has that win over Justin Gaethje. If Gaethje beats under Michael Madoff, perhaps there's a way he can get into the fight situation there. But that fight isn't until September. So maybe he could do something like that next year if Justin wins. But I wouldn't want to see him fight Tony Ferguson right now. Conor McGregor's out there, but we know McGregor's going to be fast-tracked to any um, title he wants. What would you do if you were advising Poirier in this situation right now? Do you tell him to wait around for the potential winner of Khabib versus Gaethje? That's what I would do. I would tell him to take as much time off as possible and heal. Or do you think he should stay active and maybe fight one more time in 2020? Uh, given the fact that he's already ranked so high and this is such a high-profile, exciting win, it, by UFC rules, really all he has to do is sit and wait. He's, there's probably not going to be a better fight in the next six months as far as in his weight class. He built a lot of interest. He's got a win over Gaethje. So if Gaethje wins, he's in perfect position to get another title fight. I mean, that's just an automatic. Even if Gaethje doesn't win, we don't know how, long, how much longer Khabib's going to be around. And I don't know that anybody else has a better win in the 55 division right now that would leapfrog Dustin, Dustin Poirier. Now, that fight wasn't particularly exciting, but, um, and, and that would be, would be the roadblock. But I don't know anybody else who could leapfrog him. And anybody who's gonna, who, who'd be capable of leapfrogging him, the UFC will most likely put them in with Poirier and then have that person be the number one contender. So either way, he's the number one contender fight away, or he's going to be the next guy to fight if Gaethje wins it because he's, he's, he had a stoppage win over uh, Justin Gaethje. Uh, like, I, like I said, if I'm Dustin, I have to pick my spots very carefully. He, he's always taken on a high level of opponent. He's always kind of been a UFC company man as far as who he's going to face who he's going to fight when he's going to fight i think if you're going to put your foot down when you're starting to show that that wear and tear because there was a time when a guy like daniel hooker wouldn't have ever got got dustin poirier rocked or on his heels no matter what he hit him with i mean he got knocked up by michael johnson but michael johnson is explosive big big hitter when he sits down and shot he's taking shots from justin gage he's taking shots from the best guys at multiple weight classes a guy like hooker shouldn't have been able to do what he did to him as far as accruing punishment and actually hurting him, not just landing shots, but actually backing him up and stunning him to the point where he couldn't get a counter off. He's just backing up in a straight line. That tells me his, his durability isn't where it used to be. Power's still there. The timing isn't. The power's still there. The experience is still there. The physical strength is still there. But that quickness and that timing and that durability is not. So any fight he takes from now on from an upper level top 10 type guy is a risk. At this rate, anybody in the top 10 to top 12 is a risk because even though he has the experience to survive a spot, you land the right shot on If that was a bigger hitter, somebody who hits a little bit harder, like if he fights Conor McGregor again, I, I pick Conor to stop him. At some point, Conor's going to land a shot on you know, early in the first round, and if Conor lands, I don't think he walks away from it. So I think his best bet, unless it's a money fight for Conor, sit back, wait to see what happens. And if, if, if Khabib wins, you probably got to fight one more fight. That's fine. If Gaethje fights, you demand that you demand you demand the next fight for him. That's pretty much it. That's the only options I see for him right now. 
Yeah, I can definitely agree with you on that situation. I think taking any fight right now is a dangerous situation for him. Like a fight against Charles Oliveira, that's crazy. That 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 that's really dangerous to me. He hasn't fought just high risk, uh, low reward. Yeah, very high risk, very low 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 reward because we know um, Oliveira. He yeah, I mean his striking has come a long way, but he gets a hold of something, you might be going to sleep uh, in a matter of of moments. Fighting Paul Felder, who's sitting at number who's retired. But sitting at number seven, that's a dangerous fight for him as well, too. So even fighting a, a rebounding Tony Ferguson, that's a dangerous fight as well. So it might be best for him to um, stay out of the picture. What about Dan Hooker here? He's sitting at number five. He hasn't he has not moved much since the fight on Saturday. What do you do next with him to kind of keep him relevant in this lightweight division? Well, the thing about it is you don't have to make him relevant because Dan Hooker is yet another guy who seems to always find his way into exciting fights for one and two he he's got a personality he's got a little i don't think he has the level of charisma that adesanya has or the level of charm that maybe poirier has but he has something and he he gets a reaction out of fans and if nothing else the intensity and the uh, violent nature of the fights he's in tends to create a narrative that he's must see tv the fans need to see him and this fight's just going to add on to that this fight's just going to help help him in regards to making him somebody that fans want to watch, which will give him some leverage as far as maybe calling out another top name or, or getting placed at the top of a uh, the, the top of a card, in the top half of the card or the top of the card. This only helps him. The problem with, with Hooker is I feel like we've already seen the best of him. He's not a great athlete. He's not a big dynamic puncher. And Dustin Poirier, after multiple years of facing the best of the best, has had the lead beaten out of him in the last couple of years. Daniel Hooker, who's never been an elite athlete, who maybe is fringes of elite athlete, fringe of elite fighters. I feel like in his last three three fights, he's had whatever world-class elite levels of talent kind of beaten out of him. He took a, a tremendous beating against Poirier. Just because it was competitive doesn't mean it was a beating. He fought Edson Barboza. That was a tremendous beating in that fight. When he fought Paul Felder, that was still a high-contact, high-level punishing fight. I, I believe that we may have very well seen the best of him in this level last three to five fights and we we might be seeing a very steep decline um i think he's a good fighter but the biggest thing going for hooker is his durability and his camp that he, he can take punishment so that matters no matter how hard you hit how good you are he's going to be able to stay in fights and hopefully and extend them to points where maybe you exhaust or you make a mistake or, or he can get his shots in so that always makes him look good that always makes every fight look more competitive because he can take the punishment if he had less of a chin, Poirier stops him inside of three, maybe four rounds. But he had the chin, so you, you can take shots long enough, and you're willing to go forward and throw. You're gonna get, you're gonna do work. You're going to land shots on them, and that that's gonna play to his favor. But the second thing that that I feel limits him is the fact that he's a very game plan oriented fighter. His camp comes up with great game plans, but as soon as somebody makes any sort of adjustment or catches on to what he's doing, it's a wrap. Against Felder, had a good round and a half, first two rounds, Felder figured him out, Felder, Felder started taking him apart. He won the fight, I think, after Felder got a cut, and Felder slowed down a bit, but once Felder started figuring him out, he had no other option except to go forward, throw volume, and, and try to get takedowns. He didn't do anything technically to make another adjustment to force Felder out of his comfort zone. When he fought um, Poirier, he was a little bit sharper, counters a little bit sharper, using his length a little bit better. As soon as Poirier started finding his range, as soon as Poirier started picking his spots, and setting up his shots a little bit better, he couldn't get out of the way of them. First two rounds, Poirier had a hard time getting to him. From the second half of the second round, for the rest of the fight, Poirier had no trouble landing power shots, 
getting the fight to where he wanted to and put, putting Dan Hooker on his back, back foot the entirety of the fight. He's very dependent on those game plans because he lacks athleticism and power to turn fights around. So what we've seen from Hooker in his last three to five fights, that's pretty much the best we've gonna see. And against the elite talent, I feel he's just not athletically or physically dangerous enough to beat them. I, I, can't, I can't see him beating Khabib. I don't know under what circumstances I would ever see him beating uh, Justin Gaethje. And as much as people say Connor's a clown and Connor's a joke, just based off talent alone and, and how poor his defense is after round one, I don't see how you don't pick Connor over him. I mean, who's the elite level talent guy who you say that that uh, Hooker could beat right now? Right now, he's going to go, if, unless he can call it a name and get the name just off the fact that he had a competitive loss with Poirier, he's just right back to beating second tier lightweight, hopefully getting on the win streak to put himself in position to hopefully get to that elite status again. But I, I don't think he's an elite fighter. I never thought he was. And and this fight just this fight just proved it. If there was ever a chance for him to get that big high profile win, this was it. And he couldn't get the job done. Looking at the top five to eight range, I think that if he is going to pick up a win over anyone at this point in time, it would have to be someone he would have to catch Tony Ferguson slipping who's sitting at number three, or I could see him defeating a Charles Oliveira uh, as well. Um, I think that those are two wins that he could probably take. And that's do, you, do you see him, do, do you see him just beating them or do you see it like a 50, 50 where, where he could, he, he's just as likely to get beat as he's able to beat. Oh, them. it's a 50, 50 Charles fight Oliveira. For, uh, both. Yeah. It's a 50, 50 no, fight for our boat. There's no fight where he's, where you're like, Oh, hooker's a favorite. In fact, I can't think of a fight he's had where I'm just like, Oh, he's a clear favorite. It's yeah, always it's 50, a 50, 50, 50 situation for, um, both men. So let's move on with Saturday's uh, fight card. Let's talk about Mike Perry. So he picked up a pretty decisive victory over Mickey Gall, and he won um, unanimous decision over three rounds. Mickey looked good for maybe the first three minutes or so, but you can tell that Mike was able to begin picking up what he was doing and was able to pressure Mickey. Mickey ran out of, out of gas uh, in the second and in the second round and was just not there for the rest of the fight. But the story is Mike Perry, who had his girlfriend in his corner instead of having a actual corner. Her, I think her name is Latay, and I think that's how you pronounce her last name. And this is a pretty interesting situation. People are laughing and joking about it, but there are some intriguing narratives or, or angles at this situation because A, he made it clear he is dealing with financial issues. He talked about it during the post-fight interview with John Anik, and some people are speculating that, man, maybe he couldn't afford to have a corner, and having his girlfriend in the corner with him means that he doesn't have to pay for a situation, because we know that that could be a pretty financial, almost like a tax that fighters have to pay when they are going in there and compete. He did mention that he's looking to take a situation and, and maybe find a coach, find a team, that's willing to have him. But what did you think about this situation with uh, Mick, not Mickey Gall, uh, Mike Perry having his girlfriend in the corner with him? And I hate that I don't know her name and I can't pull it up quickly. But what did you think of the situation? And is this more indicative of him having financial troubles at this point in time? First, it's Latori Gonzalez. That, that's her name. Mike Perry's girlfriend. There you go. Thank you, sir. Latori Gonzalez. There Second of all, this isn't the first time we've seen that because um, what's his name? Oh, the guy who fights the light heavyweight, Sam Sam something. 
He he just hits people with counter right hands and knocks them out. His girlfriend is used to be America's top model or competed on the show. She's been in this corner. She was the only person in the corner, but I've heard her. She knows what she's doing. Like she really knows she really knows the sport. She'd be calling some stuff out. And third of all, Mike, if you would have paid for my t- ticket, I would have gladly sat in your corner. <laughs> I need to get paid. I just need to be on TV live representing MMA ratings podcast, letting people know that yes, I'm that good. <laughs> but um it was an interesting narrative. I have a couple things to think about this fight. The first thing I have to say before we get into the money aspect is Mike Perry, a lot of people are hating on him. A lot of people are saying, well, he proved that you don't need a corner. He did not prove that at all. He did not prove that at all. But he did make some very salient points against, about corners and about how poorly they were run in mixed martial arts communities. Mike Perry said, a lot of corners, they tell you to do stuff and they give you a strategy and they're yelling at you to do stuff, but they don't understand they're not the one in there and he's not just talking about people who've never fought before he's talking about former fighters who are now cornering because regardless of whether you've been in there before or you've never been in there right now you were not in there i have to go you can give me a game plan you can give me ideas but you have to let me fight because in the middle of the fight you yelling out a bunch of stuff you screaming a bunch of stuff at the top of your lungs isn't helping anything too much is going on for me to process a million different orders a million different code words a million different voices because you know four or five people talking in the corner instead of just one it's too confusing and it hinders a fighter at some point that's what the that's what the camp is for you have a camp you come up with a strategy plan a plan b plan c you work them you develop them in the fighter so that the fighter is going to do the right thing he's he's going to take one of the three options whenever he gets in certain positions favorable position inferior position neutral position on the feet on the ground and transition you're supposed to train for everything and have them ha- have at least three options regardless of what happens, when it happens, or where it happens. So, you, so that he has that in his system and he can automatically react. If he has to be told all the time, that takes too much, much time. That slows him down because he has to think about it. You had six to eight weeks to figure this out. You should have already had, had this set up for him. And even if it's a short notice fight and a short notice opponent, you're supposed to be consistently working with your fighter adding skills, refining skills, diversifying skills, changing skills, taking stuff in, adding stuff to, so, so that he's ready, that when he's put in bad situations, he doesn't have to have you talk him through them. Because if he has to have you talk him through them, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. There's too much overcoaching. You can't do that. I, I, you can't do that in a fight. You can't do that in basketball. I can't tell you, take a jab step, fake, jab step, drive the basket. We've already been drilling. We've already been training. You know what to do. You pick one of the three options. You make a move. I can't be coaching you through it. In between, I can coach you. And the second, that's the second point. When you go in the corner, you got 50 people yelling at you, you need to do this, you need to do that. Tell them what you see. Tell them what the biggest problem is. Give them a solution to that problem. Calm them down and send them back out. You don't have time to be giving them 50 million things. There's not enough time. You're, you got three minutes, five minutes, whatever it is. You have to get to the point. You have to find out the major problems, the major things that will work, address them, calm them down, build this confidence. Send it back out. All the extra stuff, all the five people talking and everybody yelling at you, that doesn't do any good. That shows a lack of discipline, a lack of order. That does nothing but confuse the fighter. That does nothing but frustrate the fighter. And third and lastly, he said, people talk down to fighters. He essentially said that. He's like, we're supposed to be in a partnership. I want a friendship where you're giving me ideas. You're talking to me. You're telling me what you think. You're telling me what you see. You're giving me suggestions, but you're not talking down to me. You're not talking crazy to me. You're not disrespecting me. You're respecting the fact that I fought. You're respecting the fact that I've won. And you're just giving me your take on things and allowing me to decide what I'm going to use from it and what I'm not going to. And as a person who's worked with fighters and I've 
there have been one. So I, I understand the point he's making. That's all I've ever told people. Hey, this is my idea. This is what I'm seeing. You might be seeing this, but I'm telling you, this is what I'm seeing from an objective point of view. This is something you need to look out for. If they use it, fine. If they don't, they usually end up calling me saying, I'm sorry, I didn't use that. But he made some very valid points about the holes in MMA coaching as a MMA coaching, and we don't, and MMA fans don't know this because they don't watch a lot of other sports. If you watch other sports, you know, keep it simple, keep it direct, keep it brief. MMA corners, yell, scream, blah, 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 50,000 people talking and confusing the fighter. So he made some very valid points about the limitations of MMA corners and how they might want to better treat their fighters and how they might want to better do their craft when a fight's on the line. I, I can't even argue with it. He made some statements that I've been making for the past three, four years we've been doing this show. A lot of corners just aren't very well done. They're not very bright. They're confusing. They're frustrating. And they're disrespectful of fighters. And that's why you have fighters underperforming a lot of time because their camp isn't directing them in the manner that they should be prior to the fight or during the fight. So I think what he said about camps and about coaches is very important. I think that might start some changes in mixed martial arts as far as how corners are run. And and I, I think it's a welcome conversation that more people should be willing to have. Where where do you think Perry goes from here? He uh, was online today, you know, doing his thing, talking shit about uh, Nate Diaz. But from a standing standpoint, I mean, this fight wasn't enough to get him ranked in the top fifteen. It should not have. I mean, he is you know, no, he is no, Mickey, Mickey Gall is terrible. Uh, but where do you think he should go next? I mean, you have names in the top ten to five. You have Jeff Neal, Nate Diaz, Vicente Luque. Robbie Lawler, Neil Magny, Anthony Pettis. I think out of that group, Pettis might be the best bet for him just because Pettis is on a decline. What would you do next for Mike Perry? Perry, just before we go, you have to understand, if he would have been facing a better caliber opponent, Mike Perry most likely would have lost. Mickey Gall has very clear limitations on the feet, has very clear athletic limitations, and very clear limitations as a wrestler. He was a beneficiary of good business, and he got into the UFC as a result, but he's never really beaten anybody of note. He's got too many holes athletically, too many holes technically. He, he's not at this level yet. He needs like another two or three years a season. Unfortunately, it's too late. So this win isn't about Mickey Gall, because that's not impressive. Beating, beating Mickey Gall to me isn't impressive. What's impressive is the storyline with his girlfriend and not having a camp. So that's given him some leeway to call people out and to make some demands because he's hot at the moment, and he's trying to take full advantage of that. I would agree with you. He needs to face somebody who, who's not at their peak, somebody who's got some clear holes he can exploit, and someone who's a, who's, who's, who's a little bit limited is what they can do. Anthony Pettis is good because he's physically stronger than him. He should be able to wrestle him. And Anthony Pettis' wrestling has never been good. His striking is explosive and dynamic, but it's technically flawed. So even Mike Perry headhunting should be able to get some work done against Anthony Pettis. Pettis isn't as big a hitter as he used to be. And if, if Perry's chin is still there, he should be able to navigate that wrestling and win a decision. Uh, he should be just picking guys who he, he can get, he can put wins together. He needs to put wins together. He doesn't need to be facing the best opposition or the most talented. He needs to put wins together. A Neil Magny like, will be good. Anthony Pettis at this point will be good. Somebody who's got some skills, got some experience, but someone who is li- physically and technically limited enough that he can round himself into sh- shape get some easy rounds in, or at least some some competitive, but easier rounds in, less punishing rounds in, and put some wins together. He's, what, six and six now? He needs to he needs to put two or three wins together. He needs to do it, absorb, absorbing as little punishment as he possibly can at this stage. 
unless he's getting some kind of money fight, unless Connor comes back and says he wants to fight him at welterweight, he should just be taking the safest fights and the easiest fights so he can re so he can install all the changes he wants to do and kind of fit into the new identity he's developing for himself as a fighter. Now is not the time to jump the line. Now is not the time to take risks. Play it smart. Play it careful. Get some wins together. Put yourself in position so that when you get that top guy, top 10 guy, you're ready with the best version of yourself as far as your skills, your mindset, and your ability to apply the skills in a live-action situation. Beating up Mickey Gall does not prove anything to me. Getting pieced up by Mickey Gall on the feet is concerning. The fact that Mike Perry did not know enough to fake or throw head and body combinations, because if he would throw him to the body the first two rounds, that fight wouldn't have got to the third. If he would have thrown to the body as heavy as he's thrown to the head in the first round, that fight wouldn't have got to the second. The fact that he couldn't figure that out in and of himself tells me he needs to corner, but he also needs someone to rein him in and pick the right fight to get him into position to make some money, to have some momentum, and to hopefully break back through to being a top 10 welterweight. So you mentioned making money, and that's the perfect segue that I want to use to talk about our third point from Saturday, where we had one, uh, her name just escaped my mind, Kay Hansen picked up a oh, submission Jenny Frey, victory. Kay Hansen? Yes, she picked up a submission win. Oh, what was a what was an interesting debut for both women? Hansen is the second youngest person on the roster now. She's the youngest woman, older than only Chase Hooper. And um, Euphra is 35, former Invicta champion, making her debut. Now, Euphra looks good in 17 minutes. No, excuse me, 13 minutes out of this fight, 12 minutes out of this fight, until the fight went to the ground and she made the mistake of posting on her, posting on her hand in that um, Uchimata position and basically got herself armbarred. What did you think about this fight here? Um, are both of these women prospects enough even regardless of Frey's weight or excuse me her age are the prospects enough in this division at a time where the, the I think this was a strawweight women's division is is building itself up as one of the top three divisions in the uh, sport uh as, as far as Jen Euphrey is no um I like her she's got a look had she had this over earlier early in her career or had they had an Adam weight she probably would have been a superstar. She's much like Michelle Watson in the fact that she's intelligent. She's very attractive. She's effective at what she does as far as her fighting style. She's fairly exciting, and she has a sort of charisma and charm that would allow her to get past the normal barriers for being a fighter. Um, but the fact about Jin Frey is she's a person who does a lot of things. She doesn't do a lot of things well, especially defensively, and a lot of her success is based on, one, her aggression, to her athlete and her athleticism. Her aggression is tied into her athleticism. Third on the list is her technique. Her technique is tied into her aggression and her athleticism. When facing comparable athleticism, she's not nearly as aggressive. Her, 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 her technique doesn't look near, nearly as stellar. And when she is forced to fight back or she's forced into neutral positions where she has to fight for control of the fight, she usually can see because she's used to bullying people and having her way. And when she fights as a person that will comparable athleticism, she might have moments where she can bully them and have her way and dictate them and outspeed them and outquick them. But a person of comparable athleticism is going to start, if they can hang in there and not get, worn, not get knocked out, and she's not a great finisher, they start hanging out. They start getting her timing. Once they get her timing and they deal with her aggression, then the talent, then everything else levels out. Now she can't out-athlete them, and now it comes down to a matter of technique. And when she's faced better 
athletes, she's found some way to be stopped and dramatically so. And, and in this fight, this was no different. She came at Hanson. She's more experienced. She didn't allow the youngster to get any momentum. She, she thought if she jumped on her early, scuffed her up, chipped her up, roughed her up, threw her around, Hanson would break. Hanson would go defensive. Hanson would start looking for ways out. Hanson continued to fight for every position when she's on the bottom, when she's getting taken down, when she's getting hit. She kept fighting back she never just accepted it she never got defensive she was always looking to land a counter land a lead find a submission so that when Jenny Frey made the mistake that she was always going to make and she is a very mistake prone fighter she's usually just a good enough athlete to mask it Hanson had the skill set and the athleticism to snatch it and finish it that if Hanson was a lesser athlete or less physical athlete she doesn't get that submission she would threaten her with it then you free would muscle out of it athlete out of it get control cruise out the rest of the round, try, trying to play it safe. Hanson was a good enough athlete that when she made the mistake, she made her pay and she ended the fight. Uh, Frey's physically declining. She's not particularly durable and she's a bit of a front runner. And I say that with the utmost respect for her as a fighter, but you watch his River fight. She comes on strong early. If you don't go away, you don't concede it and start fighting defensively, she starts falling apart and she does not like being pressured. And at this weight class, there's a a million girls who can pressure her. Physically, they can pressure her. Technically, they can pressure her. And she doesn't have enough athleticism at this point, and she does not have enough physicality or size at this point to do much more than, you know, come out strong or win, win a strong round or two. And, and then she's essentially in the position Jessica I was at Bantamweight, a good enough athlete to navigate against these monsters, but not nearly strong enough or durable enough to make up for her lack of all-round presence technically and the, the lack of physicality she has. She doesn't have the skill set, and she doesn't have the physical tools to navigate that at this weight class. She'll be competitive, but I don't think she ever puts two or three wins together. So let's talk about Hanson as well, or you were talking about Frey there. Let's talk about Hanson. She's 19 years old, 20? 20 years old, I believe. Are we looking at a prospect that could be what some of these younger competitors were supposed to be, such as Macy Barber? Are we looking at someone who can be that individual, maybe a like a, well, Rose has developed into who, who we thought she was. Paige Van Zandt, you know, she's kind of bounced around and now she's on her way out of the UFC. Is the UFC looking at someone in, in Hanson as their next big prospect that they can build around? Uh, Kay Hanson, I think she's a big, strong, strong fighter. But the thing is, she, she's very experienced. She had amateur MMA. She had, had box. She fought as a boxer. She's got a well-rounded skill set, especially on the ground. But what showed in this fight is she's got poise. She's got mental toughness, and she's got poise. I've seen veteran fighters check out in fights where they had chances to win and wouldn't take a risk to either turn the fight around or finish it. We saw Marion Renault basically run the clock out trying to survive against... Raquel Pennington, instead of looking for anything close to a finish. In this case, Hanson had to be down two rounds. Two rounds to two. She was down, down oh rounds to two. She was down. She came back. She was looking for the submission. She never capitulated. She never took her foot off the gas. And she was always looking to turn the fight around and finish. I think mentally, that shows a lot. You saw Van Buren against Tisha Torres. And at no point did she ramp up the aggression, switch up anything she was doing to force the fight into ranges where she could exploit Torres. She just accepted the fact she's losing, kept doing the same thing, kept walking in the same combinations, losing. Jessica I did the same thing against Cynthia Cavillo, and Jessica I is a very, very experienced person. Kay Hansen refused to go down without swinging, not 
just surviving without swinging. And I feel she's got a broad enough skill set. She doesn't have the seasoning yet. She doesn't have the experience yet. And again, some of these bigger, stronger girls, that, that's, that's going to hinder her. But luckily, some of the lower-level girls, they don't, they don't have the skill set she has. Not, not the all-round actual offensive skill set. They can get takedowns. They can hold you up against the cage. They're not, not great on the feet, offensively or defensively, and they're not great finishers when it comes to submissions. So I think that I think that the the width of her skills and, and the poise she's shown and some of the experience she has as far as where she's training at, I think that separates her this weight class. I think she had the roughest first start, first couple rounds you could have as a fighter at the UFC level, and she came back and she won it against a very experienced, proven world championship level fighter. As flawed as she is, Ray's still a world champion. That's a tough fight. So I think Hanson very well could be a star. I mean, she puts two wins together in this division. Uh, we'll we'll be talking talking about her as a title contender. You just want to make sure you pick the right fights for her. I don't think she has some of the character flaws that a Macy Barber has, or, an, or she, and she doesn't have the technical flaws that a, an Antonina Shevchenko has. And I think that if you pick the right fights for her and let her get her legs underneath her and let her get a little bit more seasoning, you very well could be looking at a potential title, title, title challenger. Good thoughts there, sir. Is there anything else from Saturday's card that stands out for you? worth talking about um just to go back to the mike perry thing that money thing is very concerning i mean we always hear fighters in the ufc talk about money we hear that quite a bit and to hear him talk about it it just a couple months before tyron willie somehow how he blew a bunch of money and and kind of the spot it put him in it just really makes you wonder like it makes you wonder the mindset these guys are thinking about it won't makes you wonder if they are looking at it as a business or it makes you wonder if they're just so desperate to have that UFC in front of their name or behind it that they're willing to really shortchange themselves long term because in this, it, the UFC doesn't do anybody any real favors. It's not even the guys who make the money. So to expose yourself to certain risks inherent in the fight game and then expose yourself to certain risks in the middle of a pandemic for the kind of money they're making, it makes you wonder like, who's managing them? What is their mindset? Some of y'all have family, some of y'all have kids. What is the logic? What is the logic that you run yourself through that allows you to, to continue to be in a situation that seemingly isn't in your favor and is really just a matter of a company taking advantage of you without anything remotely close to fair compensation or or benefit? It just makes me really wonder about about what's going on and maybe something shouldn't be done from an outside source to protect some of these fighters because a lot of them seem to be uh, incapable of making good decisions on in and, in and of themselves. Awesome, sir. I appreciate that, the, the thoughts there. Let's move into the next topic today because I've been wanting to talk about something that we haven't talked about in a while, and that's the world of boxing. You know, as sports are slowly getting back into the swing of things, we have soccer, women's soccer just started. Men's soccer has been going on in other countries. NBA starts this month, uh, baseball starts this month, and hockey as well. As other sports are picking up, the boxing seems to be going at a little bit of a more slow clip. So as some cards are being held, you, you see some following UFC events in the past couple of weeks. From a boxing standpoint, what should people look forward to in a space that's might be amongst the last to really get up to running as coronavirus uh, moves its way through the country. Well, the thing about boxing as it stands right now is 
you're, you should be getting to see a lot of the fights you might not have seen in, in better times. Fighters were used to getting paid. Some fighters were getting used to be getting paid high salaries to face guys who weren't threats, guys who weren't names. Due to this pandemic and to the fact that money is a premium, you can't just get people to buy in just to see you. They want to see you against someone real. They want to see you against legitimate opposition. They want to see you against a guy that they recognize. That's how fighters are going to continue to make big money and maybe not get pay-per-views, but draw ratings and, and maybe potentially get pay-per-views. You have to have quality opposition. So in that regard, fans should be excited because now they're in a position where the fighters, not that they don't earn their pay, fighting is a tough way to make a living, but they're going to actually have to really earn their pay. You can't fight the 26-ranked guy in a division and get two or $3 million anymore because nobody's going to come to a – nobody's going to turn ESPN to watch that. Nobody's going to go to a venue to see that. Nobody's going to buy a pay-per-view for that. You're going to have to give them matchups that they want to see, matchups that excite them. And if they don't want to give them matchups that excite them, then that means younger guys who aren't as established, who may, who don't have as much money or don't, don't have as much experience in the game, who are willing to take risks, are going to have their opportunity. There's lots of opportunity for young fighters who want to take some risks. And there's going to be a lot of risks for older fighters who might be used to picking their spots a little bit more and dictating when and where and who they fight because the, the, the money is just not there. Too many people don't have jobs. Too many people are struggling. You want them to put their hard-earned money down. You want them to make trips out to see something. you got to give them something to see. Are there any fights that you're really keeping an eye on right now and looking forward to seeing that have been announced? Uh, Linares uh, versus Fortuna, just because Linares is one of the best offensive technicians, in my opinion, in boxing history. He's just so smooth, which is odd because he's so terrible defensively. And Javier Fortuna is a lesser-known guy who is now, who's basically at a crossroads fight. He was supposed to be one of the next great fighters, um, and, and he's underachieved criminally he's been in some good fights shown world-class all-time great ability but has never put it all together so this is a very important crossroads fight um um, i'm trying to see who they're going to have terrence crawford fight against next uh you're interested because him and errol spence seem to be on a collision course but they're probably gonna have to get at least another fight maybe two fights out of the way before they have a chance to um to face off against one another so i'm interested to see that i think errol spence is supposed to fight Danny Garcia. That'll be a good fight because Danny Garcia is considered one of the better welterweights, a former champion, has faced the two other best welterweights in the division, and it'll be a chance for Errol Spence to fight a guy with a name and a guy who's accomplished at the weight class instead of a guy who's just moving up like Mikey Garcia did. And, of course, the potential Anthony Joshua um, Anthony Joshua and Fury fight. I don't know if it's it's going to be Fury and Wilder or Fury and Joshua. Either way, it'd be a big-name, high-profile um, heavyweight boxing match, which is always good for sports as a whole. You know, everybody, as much as we bash on heavyweight boxing, um, when it's two good heavyweights, people will put their money out to see it and see what's going on. Okay, cool there. So we have a pretty light load today because there aren't any fights this weekend, but we do have some listener questions. And the first one, Schwan, is a knife in your boy's heart. So today it was announced that Angela Hill and Michelle Watterson are fighting on August 22nd. And I don't know what to do with myself here, man, because we don't live in a world where they both could win. We don't live in a world where they both can get all the money that they deserve. One of them has to lose on August 22nd. 
my first glance at this is thinking that that Michelle is going to lose this fight. And uh, I believe that Angela is on a little bit more of an upswing. And there's something about the way Michelle's fighting right now where she is. It seems like she's cont- she's trying to stick the point fighting too much and she's not doing enough to get the victory like to cross the finish line with enough of a burst to get the victory. That's really what I think hindered her against Carla as far as if she would have kept fighting like she did in the first round, I think she would have won that fight, but she kept, kept her foot off the gas. She took her foot off the gas and got content with uh, avoiding the takedown and not doing enough on the feet. Angela Hill, on the other hand, seems like she's on more of a war path right now. I think she defeated uh, Claudia Gadelia. I don't think she lost that fight there, but she seems like she's fighting with more of a chip on her shoulder, which I believe will um, play into this fight here. However, still, I'm heartbroken. You know, my two, probably my two favorite women's fighters are competing, and I just, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to watch it, man. Uh, yeah, it's Dana White that's tired of you running your mouth and said, I'm going to teach him a lesson. I'm going to give him a fight that <laughs> either way, his heart's going to be broken. Either way, he's going to be crying. Well, one way or another after this fight. I ain't giving him nothing. There'll be no joy for Raphael. But you know what? After this I fight saw is this over. Coming. I really saw this coming and I and I acted like I was I was I didn't see it coming, but when they both cause they fought. It's on called the same denial. Card. It's called it's called denial, Raphael. That's what <laughs> it's called. And you didn't you saw you, you didn't act. Was, it wasn't an act. You didn't want to believe it. It wasn't an act. You didn't want to believe it. No, it's not gonna happen, Shawan. He would do that to me. I saw it coming and you know they both lost on, on the same card, both via like close split decision it's just like you know what they're going to do this thankfully thankfully the ufc is not cutting not really cutting fighters right now so i don't think they will cut either one of these women but man i'm still heartbroken yeah it's i mean to be honest for both fighters it's probably the best most winnable fight for them right now as far as with somebody who's going to get them some attention and some notoriety for both fighters angela hill has a fan base i don't know that it's a loud and raucous one but she's very active in social media uh, she's got a charisma. She's got a charm. As I've said this about Angela Hill before, if she could just put three or four wins together, Angela Hill would be a huge star. She could just win a big fight because she's got the charisma. She's got the nerdy aspect. She's very physically attractive. She's got a fairly exciting style. She's got physical tools, and she's just flawed enough to where almost every fight she's in is competitive and has has some drama in it. She just is never able to put enough wins together to break through, in my opinion. Michelle Waterston has already kind of broken through because she's had a couple of name wins. Uh, the win over Herrig was a big win. The win over Paige Van Zandt was a huge win as far as as far as uh, separating her and putting a name. But she's and she's consistently found ways to put two or three wins together. And um, so again, this in this regard, both fighters are going to get attention. Both fighters are going to be you know on the front page of websites and it should be getting a lot of interviews from the UFC and from outside sports coverage so this is a chance for, for michelle to reassert herself as one of the better fighters and, and get and kind of separate her a little bit and this is a chance for angela hill to fight a named fighter and get a win over a name and this time in addition a popular fighter um i'd have to agree with you i think waterson has been trying to be more of a point fighter and just win through takedowns and control and, and landing and being safe on the feet i think that plays to her strength She's a smaller person. She's not physically durable to get into exchanges with girls. I mean, you saw when, when Rose Namajunas kicked her in the head. She looked like she got shot, you know? And when she lands on people, she doesn't have the same effect. She landed full power on, on Joanna, Joanna, and Joanna 
Chen has been dinged up a couple times, and she couldn't move her. She couldn't back her up. She couldn't really hurt her, even when she put shots together. Um, even against Carla Esparza, she when she did land, she couldn't do a lot. She couldn't do a lot with her. She almost went purely defensively, trying to stay off the ground because she knows if Carla Esparza gets up against the cage or gets her on the ground physically. It's going to wear on her so much having a bigger, stronger person on her. And also, if Carlos Suarez tees off her on the ground, she's got nothing for her. Physically, she can't handle that kind of abuse. So I think she's playing, trying to trying to play out, play the distance game, pot shot, land a couple shots here and there, get a takedown, and slow the pace of the fight so that if she lands one or two big shots or gets a takedown, that essentially determines the round. And it's a smart line of logic. It, it allows her to not take as much abuse and, and look good or look like she's confusing her opponents because they can't be as efficient or effective as they want to be. But it puts her on that tightrope where if the opponent lands three or four shots, the round's there. If she lands three or four shots, the round's hers. But that can go 50-50 either way, especially when you're not a power puncher. Um, I, I guess I'd have to favor him. You know, Hill's a more durable fighter. Hill's a hard, I think if Hill would have put Michelle Watson in the same situation she had, Claudia Gedelian, I think she stops Watson. Watterson, to me, isn't physically durable enough. Um, she doesn't hit hard enough. And Hill's a better athlete. She's probably not quicker, but she's she's a better athlete at this stage, and she's physically stronger. The only advantage that Watterson has is that Watterson is very tough, and Watterson tends to fight in a very sneaky and slick manner. Even against Joanna, she was able to hang on long enough to find a, a chink in the armor and put herself in a position where she could have finished the fight. She was super close to it, but given how that fight was going you would have thought she would have had any chance at all to get in a position to finish joanna and she did and basically what she's been winning by she's just been outsmarting opponents overloading them with strikes and fakes getting takedowns controlling them getting back to her feet getting to the outside range picking them at them picking them picking at them when they commit taking them down winning rounds up against the cage winning rounds on the ground and just and throwing volume and just essentially hindering her opponent's ability to be effective offensively she's trying to play a a game she doesn't necessarily have the tools for, but a game most MMA fighters aren't smart enough to figure out, smart enough or skilled enough to figure it out. So in that regard, she could outsmart her, but I think there's such a gap as far as the physical skills and the fact that Michelle Watterson's defense is so bad um, on the feet, I don't see how she wins this. I mean, unless Angela just has a tremendous spray fart. And it, it's possible. But if Angela fights with purpose and controlled aggression, I don't see how she doesn't walk walk Watterson down and I would think if she really wants to put a stamp on it she needs to stop her she needs to put a stamp on it she needs to she needs to separate herself she needs to stop it when a decision win isn't going to get it she needs to stop it when Michelle Watterson to get the hype and the attention she she says she wants what's interesting here is that I feel like the UFC is trying to get behind Angela Hill like I almost feel like they want to get behind her that they see how much of a personality she is and just how much people enjoy her so I think that we're at a point where um, we are on the cusp of getting behind Angela Hill, and that's something I've been wanting to uh, see for so long. Um, I it, want to. It, talk it's just about... that she just she just has to win it. That's the thing about it. She loses again. It just I mean she's been right on the cusp of breaking through, but she's found some way to lose in every single instance. This is yet another chance she has to break through. Yeah, man, just this is this is definitely another chance. Let's talk about um, Justin Poirier because the next question we have is where did he stand on the list of all-time greats? So Justin Poirier is an interim champion, and or he was an, an interim champion. You know, he's never been an undisputed uh, champ. If you look at his record, he has wins over Max Holloway, 
Eddie Alvarez, Justin Gaethje, Anthony Pettis. Four champions right there. He has wins over Jim Miller, um, Diego Brandao. Uh, let's see. He has, wait, he has two wins over Max Holloway. I forgot about that. I forgot about the first one. But he has two wins over Max Holloway. Those are probably his most um, important wins. When you look at his career, where do you think he will end up as an all-time great lightweight? Do you think he's in that consideration? Or if he doesn't get the lineal title, if he doesn't take that undisputed belt, will he not be considered amongst those greats? Or will he be just under the tier of the best of the best? Um, as far as a, as far as a fighter, I can see you saying he's an all-time great fighter just because he was a top five, top three fighter in two weight classes and an interim champ, champion at one. Um, it's hard for me to say he's a top lightweight of all time. I mean, he lost to Michael Johnson by stoppage, uh, even though he was he had that draw against Eddie Alvarez. And it, with the exception of like you know, there's against the very best guys he's faced, he seems to have always come up short. You know, it wasn't um, a draw. I mean, it wasn't a draw against Alvarez. He um the second one. Was the, no oh, was no contest. Okay, yeah. The first one. The first one was a no contest, and he stopped Eddie in the second one. I I think I think I would say he's an all time great fighter. Um, I guess as far as the lightweight, given the the runs he's put on multiple times, he's made it to the top top ten, top five, whatever. You could say that, being that he's never been an official defending champion, it's hard to really separate. I mean, the the interim, the interim championship has some merit to it, but the fact of the matter is he he won the interim championship against a featherweight and then when he faced the champion he was essentially just just washed by him it wasn't competitive on any level in any form or fashion so um i guess when you put together the amount of wins the fact that he's beaten some elite guys and he's beaten them fairly impressively you, you could say he's one of the best light lightweights um the fact that he's never able to win a champion championship and he's never gone on a win streak like a tony ferguson might put some asterisks by it but definitely i think he's one the all-time great fighters just because of how long he's been doing it and, and, and how and the names on his resume and the fact that he was able to essentially dominate two weight classes. True. Some good thoughts there, sir. I think I think he'll be on like that tier below of being like all-time greats. Like in the group that includes uh, all-time greats at lightweight, like the group that will include like a Benson Henderson, a Frankie Edgar will be on that group, but uh, but ahead of the list that include individuals like Tony Ferguson, Jim Miller, others who are like right on the cusp but weren't um, champions in their time. Uh, last question we have for today is a rather simple one. We have a holiday weekend coming up. I keep forgetting about it, but I am working on a short week this week, and tomorrow tomorrow's I think it's my last full day in the office. Fantastic. So what are you doing for the for holiday, man? We have 4th of July, and every damn thing is basically closed. So how are you going to be celebrating? Uh, I don't know. I'll probably just be hanging out. I'm supposed to train a kid. I got a kid I got to work out on uh, on Saturday. It's 4th of July. Work out a kid. Work out my kids during the week. Um, boxing, I plan to move. So nothing fun. I'm just just stuff that's got to get done. I, I don't have any fun, fun plan at all, to be honest. Yeah, man, I'm trying to find the opportunity to sneak away to the beach, but you know, I don't, I don't know what's gonna happen. I may just be sitting in the house not doing shit as usual, trying to make it not happen. But that's looks like it's gonna be the case. I will be drinking though. That is definitely happening. But that's all I have to talk about 
in the space of MMA this week. Actually, Sean, let me ask you a question. Speaking of, of drinking, did you see my tweet from last weekend about liquor before beer? Uh, no, I did not. So, I okay, did not I'll, see that. I was having a um, situation last week, and I'm just going to, you know, this is we're going to create a corner of this podcast called the Therapy Corner. So I was having a drink last week, and all I had, I had enough rum to make one rum and coke, and then I had enough beer to finish the night off. I couldn't remember what is the order of it. Is it liquor before beer, you're in the clear, or is it the other way around? Do you, have you ever heard of this before? Yeah, I have. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of which one it is. I want to say, I think, I want to say it's liquor before beer. I think that's what it is. So that's what I did, and I did not wake up. I definitely fell asleep drunk, but I didn't wake up hungover. However, it seems like everybody in the world wanted to peer pressure me into just shutting up and, and drinking that night to where, I mean, I felt kind of attacked. I had almost over 200 replies to that one tweet talking about how I need to basically man up and just, and, and, and just drink. I felt personally attacked over this because I'm trying to drink responsibly and not be a drunk mess at home by myself the next morning. Yeah, you, you don't, you're not going to get lost responsibility from social media <laughs> at once you once you do something you get drunk and you make some huge mistake burn your house down injure yourself people laugh at you say hey we're an idiot but before you do it they'll be like man you ain't no what you a punk you scared that's why i'll follow you anyways man you sorry <laughs> they're not the ones I... to talk you off the off the cliff they will laugh at you after you jump and injure yourself the good thing about being on lockdown is i haven't been out ragingly drunk and been drunk tweeting, which I am famous for. I am good for drunk tweeting and drunk texting. Thankfully, we have not been out the house in a situation where that has occurred. But the minute it does, the minute we are free to go out and party like it's 1999 all over again, you might want to unfollow me. I might want to, I might have to deactivate my Twitter that night. Yeah, you, you're probably going to have to. And there's, I mean, when it when it's officially, when people can really go out and it's going to be really Oh man, dude! Talk, I mean, you saw how it went the minute people got a taste of freedom, and it was, and the danger was still there. They get it to the point where the danger is manageable and it's safe, and people are really supposed to be out there, out there. Man, it, it's gonna be so ugly. It's gonna be, gonna be so, 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 so ugly. Not just well, kids; it'll be kids pass, pass out, parents pass, pass out next to them. Like y'all going to the same parties? Damn, that's what that's what it's gonna, what it's gonna be like. Unfortunately, it's not this weekend, so we're going to have to stay safe. But with that in mind, we will be back next week to talk about uh, mixed martial arts. And as always, you can find our content on our flagship at MMAratings.net, which is where you can find all of our written content. I'm back to writing starting this week. Adam Martin is doing a lot of great content. Schwann Humes does content there as well. You can find our social media channels at MMA Ratings. Uh, net on Instagram and Twitter and you can also catch us on all of the podcast platforms including Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify um, Breaker, Anchor and a bunch of others or you can come over to YouTube and check out our content there but with that in mind Schwann let everybody uh, know um, how you're doing or just tell everybody goodbye and let's go ahead and close out for this week I uh, wanted to thank y'all again for uh, listening into us I'm good. we're trying to I don't know about Rafael but I know myself I'm trying to get a maybe some couple interviews during this slow period so we have something uh, you know different hear a couple different voices hear, hear somebody else argue with us instead of hearing us argue with each other but I just want to thank everybody for supporting the show 
And uh, we're going to continue to get good content out there for you. And please stay safe during the 4th of July. I, I know people are stuck at home, but, you know, somebody's going somebody's gonna to make a run for it. I know somebody's going to make a run for it. So if you do, just be safe. Have a good night.